Welcome to episode 63 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And this week we've got a first-time host for this show, but a man who's definitely got a lot of podcasts under his belt already, Mr. Al Sedano. Welcome aboard, Al. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Glad to have you on board. Oh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be talking about this one. I really enjoyed rereading this. Yeah, that's for those who aren't aware, we're on part 63, which is the Chris Claremont run on the New Mutants, which is the second longest story in this series. So if you've been reading along at home, you've read about 40% of the comics you're going to be reading by the time this podcast series is done. So let's dig into the specific story details here. All right. So as it appears on the list, this run includes Marvel Graphic Novel number 4, New Mutants Volume 1, Issues 1 through 54, and New Mutants Annuals number 1 through 3. If you're reading it in the classic X-Men, or sorry, classic New Mutants, Volumes 1 through 7 trade paperbacks, which is the format I've got, it also includes a couple of X-Men specials, another New Mutants special, and uh, Uncanny X-Men 163, because the stories kind of cross over back and forth. I didn't read those in my reread because I like to stick to exactly what's on the list as published by Marvel. Yeah, that's the same thing I did. I only grabbed the issues of New Mutants and read those. Although I did add in, just for myself, because it still was Claremont at the time, the New Mutants Special Edition, which is the Asgard issue, and issue 63. I'm not familiar with which one that was. My As we discussed in the uh, New Mutants 98 podcast, I've read this complete run in trades before, and then from there I jumped to the first appearance of Deadpool. Ah, no, I started reading New Mutants with 61 when it came out, and I went back and got all the issues. So I have them all phys- for the most part physically, but uh, 63 took- takes place during issue 21. Okay. It's uh, what happens to magic when she teleports out of the uh, mansion and then comes back at the end wearing a spacesuit with a laser gun. Yeah, there's definitely a story there. Although I thought it was a Claremont one until I reread it and I realized it was only his plot. Simonson did the sc- Louis Simonson did the script, he did the plot. But it's still, for me, I'm like, well, if I'm rereading this whole thing, I might as well at least have that part that kind of fits in that little blank. Yeah, and there are a few blanks to read it are in here if you read just what you're getting yeah it's on this. definitely a series that especially more so early on is you really need to read x-men with it because there's a lot of little things where it goes back and forth into each other and sometimes they don't always explain what happened no it's i was actually surprised at how well it, it held up this time through reading just that but we might as well finish the technical details before we go into too much of the story true sorry go ahead so all 58 of these issues were written by chris claremont now, as you would imagine, when you've got 58 issues involved, you're going to have a number of artists. A couple. Yeah, the artist who co-created the series as penciler with Chris Claremont was Bob McLeod. I would say that the other artist who really put his stamp on the series and was a major creative influence was Bill Sinkovich, which I hope I pronounced somewhat remotely correctly. That's the way I've always heard his name pronounced, so. Other pencilers involved were Jackson Butch Geese, or Geis, Brett Blevins, Kevin Nolan, Alan Davis, Rick Leonardi, Sal Buscema, Steve Purcell, Art Adams, Mary Wilshire, Keith Pollard, Steve Liahoa, and Paul Smith. And Paul Smith is probably better known for his uncanny run. Now, when it comes to inkers, we've got a few more of those. We have got P. Craig Russell, Val Mayerick, John Beatty, Kevin Nolan, Paul Neary, Dan Green, Terry Austin, Kyle Baker, Will Sportaccio, Alan Gordon, Mike Mignola, Art Adams, Bill Sinkovich, Del Barris, Steve Liahoa, Bob McLeod, Tom Palmer, Kim DeMolder, Mike Gustavich, Bob Wyacek, Armando Gill, and John Tartaglioni. 
I'm glad you're doing these names. <laughs> For colorists, we've got Glennis Oliver, Petrus Cortis, Elaine Lee, Christy, a.k.a. Max Scheel, Mike Higgins, Michelle Wrightson, George Russos, Ken Fedonowicz, Andy Yanchus, and George Russos is listed twice. He's that good. Yep, or I just messed up when I was compiling all the interior cover credits on I'll... these seven trades. Let's go with the good. <laughs> okay. Letterers, Lois Buhalis, Tom Orzachowski, Ken Bruzenak, Jill Rosen, Bob McLeod, and Janice Chang. Editors are Anne Nusenti and Louise Jones, a.k.a. Wheezy, a.k.a. Mrs. Walt Simonson, and Aldering Jim Shooter's Editor-in-Chief era. Yep. Now the cover dates. This kicks off with Marvel Graphic Novel number four. The only cover date was 1982, just as the generic copyright date, and it went on sale on September 7th, 1982. So the New Mutants were created and were first published on my fifth birthday. They were less than a week after my uh, seventh birthday. Okay. Yes, we're yeah, pretty tightly packed there. Yeah, five days. Yeah, I've been told that early September is a big one for births. Yeah. The cover dates and publication dates of the final issue in this series, that would be New Mutants 54, cover date August 1987, on sale date of April 28th, 1987. So that's the technical details. After that, we'll drop in a promo for one of Al's shows, and then we'll get into personal histories in a little more detail than we already have and what this means. Sounds good. In February 2014, a new podcast dedicated to the Marvel Comics character, Adam Warlock, debuted. And the internet broke in half. Well, not really. Far from it, to be honest. But a few of you actually noticed, and we thank you for that. Over the course of 2014, we covered all of Adam's Silver Age adventures and have started on his Bronze Age solo series, as well as his current appearance in two Thanos specials. But it's time for a change. So I'm sad to announce that episode 20 will be the last episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. However, I am pleased to announce that in 2015, we will premiere the first episode, which we will call episode 21 of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Yes, the show is continuing but now with more Thanos. Each month we have John M. Wilson on as we cover an issue of Warlock, and the other episode of the month, we will continue to have Brian Zeno on to cover Thanos' appearances, starting with Captain Marvel 25. So join us in 2015 for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, now with 20% more Thanos. And we're back. Woohoo! All right, so one of the first things we like to talk about you know, we could do this in any order. Listeners have probably noticed that we don't use a consistent order for the next few points in terms of how we each got exposed to the story, the significance of the story, what impact it had on the industry or on ourselves, plot synopsis. Yeah, well, there's a lot of issues to plot synopsize. There is. So we'll probably do that in the broadest sense. But since we've already sort of gotten into what format we've been reading them in and a little bit of the personal stories, let's go into that in more detail. So Al, okay. why don't you kick it off? Okay, so how I read these issues? Well, I started reading New Mutants... Let's see. For picking it up off the stands, like regularly buying it, I actually didn't read any of these that way. I didn't start reading till issue 61, which is the uh, last part of Fall of the Mutant storyline. And Claremont had already been long, you know, several issues gone as creator. Except for one or two of these, so all of these pretty much I picked up as back issues, except for I think issue 21 and maybe one other one, which I just, you know, those issues like when you, before you start actually collecting comics, for some reason you always end up with 
several comics in your house anyway. You kind of don't really remember exactly where they came from. You just kind of have them. Sure. And issue, at least I did. Issue 21 is one of those books. So I had read that years before I read any of the other ones. For me, it was always going back and reading, getting back issues. So I never really read these up until recently, actually, in order, because I always read them as I got the issues, you know, depending what I could afford and what I could find. So I would have like, you know, issue 50, and then I would read 19 and 20, and then 32, and then go back to 1 through 4, etc. Yeah, my my own history with this is actually a lot less developed. So when I first got into comics, the first title I read regularly was Marvel's G.I. Joe series. And I got into the classic X-Men run. So those that reprinted when Chris Claremont kicked off Uncanny X-Men. Oh, and they had the backups? Yep. Yeah, that's the series. Yep, I remember that. And once we were on vacation in some hole-in-the-wall fishing vacation, we went because my parents had heard wonderful things from people that they knew and dad from guys that he knew at work. And we went out there and none of us fish. And they didn't <laughs> say it's a fishing lodge. So we got there. And if you fish, it's phenomenal. It's this lake in northern Saskatchewan where you go and there's like the prize fish of the day. So every day people will park in front of the general store and see what they think is the most impressive fish. And even at the time when I had no interest in fishing, I admitted that they were impressive. But we didn't fish. Not really a lot to do. So <laughs> I bought all four different comics that they had in that general store. And those and the couple of toys I brought with me had to last me for the entire vacation. One of those was New Mutants issue 37. So that one I read, which is, it's actually an odd one to start with. Because my first issue of the New Mutants that I read was the Secret Wars 2 crossover when I wasn't reading Secret Wars 2, in which this incredibly powerful being that I knew nothing about shows up and fights a bunch of heroes I knew nothing about and kills every single one of them. Yeah. And then the next one I read was a, a couple issues later, hadn't read anything else to do with Secret Wars, and it was when they, the story titled Getting Even, when they're going after the Hellions. Oh, they're going after Empath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Empath specifically, which... Now, they're both actually pretty good issues. Yeah, they, they are. Yeah, you, you can see why, or maybe able to see why I had a tough time getting into the series, where I read one just to see the entire team get slaughtered, and the next time I pick it up, that team is alive and well, and you know, getting vengeance against some guy. And I had absolutely no idea what the backstory was. I didn't know why they got needed to get vengeance against Empath or felt they did. To me, it felt like the heroes were bullying one of the bad guys. Yeah. Reading it in context... He got off light, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's what I was going to say. He got off easy. I mean, he's guilty of, let's see, kidnapping, attempted murder, and I would call what he did to Tom and Sharon, rape. Yeah. Multiple counts of rape. Now, considering the context of the time... Not saying, oh, it was okay to do that, but the fact is, it was getting really dark for mutants. So the fact is, if they said anything, A, he would have just been shot in the head probably, and B, probably so would they if they went to authorities. Yeah, the, the only way you could argue that it's not rape is because if you look at the way Tom and Sharon are first introduced, they're clearly interested in each other. He made the, the relationship develop far further and far faster. I, I would also agree that it's rape, but I can see them getting it past the comics code authority at the time based on that logic. Oh, yeah, well, because also you don't really see it. You kind of, it's very, it's said in the words and kind of implied, but, you know, they don't actually say 100% what they did. Yeah. That's how they got through it. But, I mean, yeah, he basically makes them rape each other over and over and over again. Yeah, which just opens up, if that's what he does to distract them, what do you think he does in the stories we haven't seen where he's bored on the Friday night and goes out on the town? Exactly. The only reason that they shouldn't be putting him in jail is because of his power set, he's not going to stay in jail. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, if nowadays I think in the Marvel Universe, if they did the story of Empath, they actually could probably have gotten the press charges on him. 
but in the time period it was taking place and it never would have worked. They would not have gotten that far because they probably have been in as much trouble as him. So I'm fine with them going off and doing their vengeance bit on their own. In fact, I think I understand the point they're trying to go with like being bullies, but I'm like, no, Cypher, you should have punched the hell out of them. Yeah, and it's we maybe we should get into a little bit of plot synopsis for those listening who aren't familiar probably. with Empath. <laughs> um, if you're familiar with Daredevil, think the Kilgrave, the Purple Man, soon to be played by David Tennant. Looking forward to that. Oh God, yeah. But yeah, essentially, Empath, the the New Mutants themselves are the next generation of the students at Xavier's School for the Gifted. And the Hellions are Emma Frost's, or the White Queen's, counterpart team, which, being recruited by Emma Frost, have a different set of moral standards. Most would agree it's lesser, but it is absolutely different. The empath's particular talent, if you want to call it that, is to be able to control how anyone feels about anyone else. So he can just drive you into particular emotional states. Yeah, he controls all your emotions, so he can make you feel whatever he wants. And he is a, what's a nice way to put it, a complete and utter bastard? Yeah. Yeah, see, whereas Kilgrave the Purple Man, he'll make you jump off a bridge by just saying, go jump off a bridge. And you will. Internally, you'll be fighting it every step of the way. You know what's wrong, but you'll be doing it. Whereas Empath, he can't say, go jump off a bridge, and he you do it just because he told you that. The way he controls people is, you know, first he'll make you effectively worship him, and then say, go jump off a bridge, and then you're jumping off the bridge not because it's mind control, but because he's made you, you know, love or worship him so much that you'll just do whatever he tells you. Exactly. So, so as we said, the, the New Mutants themselves are the next generation of students. And they were formed at a time when Professor X believed the entire team of X-Men were dead. Yeah, that was during the Brood storyline, right? 160, like 2 to like 166, 67. Yeah, and if you're just reading the issues in these trades, you know that someone's trying to kill these New Mutants early on along in their formation. If you skip that issue of the Uncanny X-Men that's included in the trades and just read what's in these stories, you don't know until after it's resolved that the person attacking them or the entity attacking them was a queen brood that was manifesting within Charles Xavier. Yeah, because when I was rereading this, they, that storyline basically is issues one through three in New Mutants. And then you go to issue four, and it's completely resolved, and you get a little bit of an idea from what they say, but they don't really exactly explain to you what happened, nor do they actually ever, because ever tell you the X-Men are alive. Because in the first few issues of the New Mutants and of the graphic novel, when they first appear, one of the reasons he doesn't want to form them is because the X-Men are dead, and he's very, Xavier's very grief-stricken, mm-hmm. but eventually relents because these kids need teaching. And then all of a sudden, one day, like, was it issue six, the, or seven, sorry, in issue seven, the X-Men pop up. And if you're only reading New Mutants, you're going, I thought they were dead. Well, what happened? You talk about them being dead. Yeah, I, uh, the closest they come to explaining that is at the end of issue three. Of New Mutants, There's the little box at the bottom says, the story continues in Uncanny X-Men number 163, and that's it. So you kind of feel, well, the Uncanny X-Men still have a title, but given the nature of the X-Men, it could be a whole new group of people. Yeah. Right. So it, it that's a little disjointed if you just read what's on the list and skip that New Mutant special that you've mentioned down the road. That New Mutant special, the Asgard stuff as you refer to it, is a massive turning point for one of these founding team members. And if you don't read it, you go from... Okay, everything's fine. It's hunky-dory. There's very few boiling plot lines to, you know, Daniel Moonstar, a.k.a. Mirage, trying to cope with her new place in the cosmos. Well, that and also you think they screwed up with drawing Karma, because you have Karma return to the team in issue 34, and she has been manipulated by the Shadow King, and she weighs about 500 pounds. And you come back to 35, and she's back to the size she was in issue 1. Yeah. 
That was very disjoint to me as well. I noticed as I'm reading it, whenever they had these little just mini, like I don't want to call them crossovers, but the fact is because they took place in the same school and they were written by the same guy, X-Men New Mutants would crisscross all the time with each other. And when they do that, they really weren't always very good at explaining what happened there. It was almost like it was almost like they just assumed you were reading both, so they didn't have to explain that. When there was an actual crossover crossover, they actually did explain, like, when they were killed. Like, issue you said you read the first one, 37. They're killed by the Beyonder. Mm-hmm. And then they're brought back by him in Secret Wars 2, number 9. In issue 38, they actually do explain what happened there. And in a few other times when there's an actual crossover, or at least, like, you know, like the Secret War 2 stuff, the real ones, they actually explain what happened with these crossover things. But once it's just X-Men New Mutants, they're just like, hey, you'll figure it out. Yeah, it almost feels like Chris Claremont, you know, with the Secret Wars 2, a lot of creators weren't really happy with Secret Wars 2. They felt like editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was ramming the Beyonder down their throats and forcing him into every book in the line. So a lot of creators were going out of their way to summarize Secret Wars 2 so that the fans who didn't want to go buy that big event but wanted to stick with the team they wanted got what they needed. But on the flip side, when Chris Carter is writing two books and he wants all of his readers to read both books, most of the time, what you get is a little caption editor's note telling you which issue of that other title has the explanation you're looking for, rather than what that explanation is. Yeah, but if you're just reading New Mutants on its own, it does read a little disjointed. You're like, wait, what happened here? Yeah, so like the, the Secret Wars 2 kind of stuff, it's like, you know, if the question is what's 2 times 3, the Secret Wars crossovers, he'll say it's 6. The New Mutants Uncanny X-Men crossovers, he'll say, yeah, you'll find the answer on page 12 of the other book. <laughs> Go buy it. It's mine. I get a paycheck for it. Go do it. So the, the broad plot synopsis, as I said, initially the team was formed with the Brood Queen. Her goal was to have Xavier put together another team of mutants that she could implant her brood in that they could use to take over the world. But once they're here, Professor Xavier said, you know what? She wasn't wrong. It's worth having another team. But one of the things I found really sets New Mutants apart compared to the other franchise books, you know, far more distinct than, say, Uncanny and Adjective-less X-Men would be in a few years' time, is that this really is a different feel. This feels less like the early X-Men books, where it's like a bunch of high school graduating college kids who are trained to be superheroes at a school. This feels like they're at a school and their super training is just yeah, learn how to make sure you don't accidentally injure yourselves and others. Yeah, and that maybe some of you might become heroes, and some of you might not. But yeah, they were very much just a, yeah, not really a novice team, because that implies that they're supposed to be heroes. They're just like, we're just teaching you how to use your powers and not get yourselves hurt. Yeah, this is not the X-Men farm team. This is just training kids, right? And it's, as you said, if some of them grow up and choose to be heroes, okay. But at no time does Professor... Charles Francis Xavier say, okay, you guys, the front line's over there. That's where you need to be. Yeah. It's actually on a very much smaller scale what Morrison did when he took over X-Men and he opened a school up and had like hundreds of students show up. Mm-hmm. That's basically just a smaller version of that. You know, no, most of them weren't supposed to be X-Men. They were just the students there going to school. Yeah. I, and that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about this run is the introduction of Cypher. Because... With this full history, and Chris Claremont created a lot of characters. He had a huge cast that he juggled through multiple books all the time. Cypher is the first mutant I can think of whose power is distinctly and clearly non-combative. And who's actually part of one of the teams, not just a background member. Yeah, he was recruited, but even that was sort of a a last-ditch attempt when the New Mutants themselves were trying to save one of their members. For the most part, Cypher was a mutant and didn't even know he was a mutant. He was just Doug Ramsey who seem to have a thing for languages, computer or otherwise. Yeah, and in fact, I don't even know when they 
figured out he was a mutant because I'm rereading the I was rereading the issues. All of a sudden, they just kind of say Doug's a mutant, and I'm like, he is. Yeah, that one. When I was reading this the first time, I was actually reading the entire X franchise in publication order, and the reveal that he was a mutant comes out in a conversation that Charles Xavier has with Kitty Pride in the Uncanny X-Men title. Okay. I mean, I had read those X-Men issues before, and I would read them together. Just for doing this, for preparing for this, I wanted to read just the series. Yeah, and that's the way I'm going to be doing the whole ser- the whole podcast series myself, is just reading the listed titles. And that's another one of those plot holes that's apparently coming through. Yeah, because I'm reading that going, wait, when? Doug's a mutant? I, I could see where they kind of implied here and there, but they never said it before. How did they know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's where it came out. You find out he's a mutant with a, a gift for languages, which said so I I like it because it has it's got almost no combat skill involved. We do learn by the end that his talent for languages also means he can read body language. Yes, because that's how he wins poker. Yeah, so he he can pick up on subtle cues like that. So I can see him, uh, you know, being very good, not so much as a frontline combatant, but you know, if you put him on the back line with a view of the field you know, more like the, the command general, you give him some technical training and he can oh, read yeah. the body language and start to direct people, even though his abilities aren't used that way. No. Spoilers, he survives these issues, but not many after that. My first one is the one where he died. Where, actually, no, the one right after he dies. He's dead on that first page. Okay, so that's, I guess that means he died in issue 60. Yep. Yeah, because I knew he, he died not long after, so I didn't know how long, so it's... Dying that quickly, that's almost like the next writer is going, he can't fight, what the hell use do I have for him? Bump him off! Yeah, Louise Simonson got rid of him pretty quickly, and less than it, like a year later, she got rid of magic. <sighs> Depressed me. Yeah, and that's, there's a very large and rich cast of characters. I mean, this is Chris Claremont in his prime, on at least on the young team. Yeah, and there's nine of them on this team. Yeah, and this is a young team that legitimately feels like a young team. You know, you go back to the original X-Men, they don't seem that young. I find, if you read Stan Lee's X-Men, they feel more like slightly immature adults than actual teenagers. Yeah, and from what I understand of things, though, from like since they came out in 1963, the original X-Men, is by the time you were like 17, 18, 19 years old, even back you know, in the early 60s, you were pretty much a grown-up. Yeah, there was a more societal expectation, but I mean, my day job is as a teacher. I've seen just psycho- psychological studies that date back to prior than the 60s, saying this is the stage people are at, or even just... You know, these are the problems that people have. You go back to 1960s Spider-Man, Peter Parker's a teenager with teenage problems. 1960s X-Men, they describe these guys as teenagers, they don't have teenage problems. Well, yeah. It doesn't feel like they're in that world. These guys get that. I mean, there's multiple times when they have issues relating socially to students from other schools and at-school dances. Well, yeah, they never did that factor. That could also have been, like we said, this is a a team of just training to use your powers to not hurt yourselves. The X-Men were always being trained to you're going out there to fight a war. Mm-hmm. So that might be the difference as well. As, you know, training just to train as opposed to training because this is well, your life will depend on this. Balance on this ball, beast. Yeah, and it, it works really well, I find. It it gives the book a distinct identity. I mean, if I were to, to look at all the other comics I've read, which are predominantly Marvel, the most similar tone, I would say, would be early Runaways. I could see that. Yeah, if you take those Brian K. Vaughan Runaways... These guys are not trying to be superheroes. They've got powers. They've got abilities. They're trying to stop their evil parents from ruining the world. But after that, they're just kind of trying to exist and get by. Yeah, and that's basically what they're doing here half the time. They're just trying to survive. Yeah. Yeah, most of the time, they are not. They don't go looking for trouble. Either trouble finds them or it finds one of them because they all have backstories that, you know, people are going to be getting for them. 
And also they're kids. And like you said, they're very much kids. They're teenagers. So they're very headstrong and very, my friend's in trouble. And they leap into, they always leap into danger without thinking. Yeah, it's, if one of them is in trouble, the rest of the team has got their back. Even if that means going through some sort of demonic parallel dimension and coming out a year in the future, they're going to do something. Exactly. All right, well, we talked about the origin of the team a minute ago with the graphic novel where you said they, they were formed by Xavier to be like a training team. Maybe we should go over real quick the characters, the nine of them. So at least when we mentioned them, people have a clue who they are because they haven't really read it. Yeah, let's do that. I was thinking, we were talking about them. Like, we explained Hell Empath. We might as well explain the actual main characters. <laughs> so if we go back to that graphic novel, and it's Marvel graphic novel number four, as we mentioned, Marvel has a whole series of graphic novels. We'll actually discuss the series and the concept behind that in a lot more detail later on. There's another podcast, which I will also be on for, with Marvel graphic novel number one, and only Marvel graphic novel num novel number one instead of a graphic novel of 57 other issues. Yeah. So the history of that line, we'll go with that. Be a lot easier to discuss it then. <laughs> yeah. So the, the core characters in the sequence that they're introduced in the original graphic novel are Rain Sinclair, or Rain Sinclair, a.k.a. Wolfsbane. She's kind of like a werewolf. She can transform from a human state to a full wolf state and to a transitional state, where she's got attributes of both. And for the most part, she's mostly called the youngest member of the team half the time. Because at the time when it starts, she's only about 13. Yeah. She is not looking to be a hero. She's Her personal story through this is a lot of self-acceptance. Yeah. She was raised by a very right-winged pastor, shall we say? Uh, I, I would say, forgetting that part, even very abusive. Yeah. it's uh, This is one of those people that, you know, reads the Bible, ignores that love thy neighbor bit. And cherry picks the parts that they want to say, okay, anyone who's not like me needs to be burned at the stake and it's just absolute sin. And Rain Sinclair is a main part of it. So she was raised in an environment where she was told she was an abomination and, you know, basically a crime against God. Yeah, because not only was he her pastor, he basically was her foster father yeah. because her mother died in childbirth. And spoiler for anybody who, but later on when she's in Excalibur, you find out she, he is her father. Yeah, yeah, it's... If you've read the, the Spider-Woman miniseries by Bendis and Alex Maleev, there's some debate about whether it's Wolverine or Jessica Drew that's the most screwed over person in history. I'd put Rain <laughs> Sinclair at number three on that list. I could see that. Uh, the next one introduced is Sunspot. Now, he is unique in that he is super strong temporarily. He's, he, he's a solar-powered mutant who can turn his abilities on or off. When they're on, he is incredibly strong. And when they're off, he's just a normal guy. He can't turn them on indefinitely as Colossus can. He is solar-powered. He does consume the charge faster than he can accumulate it. Yeah, he's powered by the sun. Yeah, he is... At one point when they're fighting in a mall and he falls three stories and lands on a car, the Sentinels say... Or the Sentinels that threw him down there say, oh, he must have heightened durability as part of his power set when they're diagnosing them. That's the only mention of that in the entire run. The rest of the time, he's just... He's not invulnerable. Yeah, no, he's not invulnerable, but I can see the higher... Uh, slightly least... Uh, what did you say they called it again? He's a slightly little more dense. durable... Du higher durability. That's it. Thank you. Because he has to be able to, like, otherwise when he hits buildings, he would hurt himself. Yeah, just so the physics of the biology, if you jack up someone's strength but don't increase their durability, they are going to hurt themselves. Yeah. So he has to be somewhat durable, but not durable enough to make him anywhere near invulnerable because he gets shot. He still gets, you know, bullet goes through him and hurts him. Yeah, I mean, his muscles may be strong enough to lift a car. It doesn't mean his bones are strong enough to withstand the stress of the car unless they've been jacked up a bit. Exactly. So he has to be a little bit. And he's, when I said Wolfsbane's mostly called the youngest, half the time reading it, they call Sunspot the youngest. 
they kind of forget half the time which one's the youngest. They're both about 13, at least when they initially show up. Yeah, it's reading it. I could see that because the the way I would read this is that Rain Sinclair, a.k.a. Wolfsbane, was the one born most recently, and Sunspot is the most immature. Oh, definitely. Yeah, Roberto da Costa, whose father, Emmanuel da Costa, I mentioned in the New Mutants podcast, a bit of a nasty piece of work. Yeah, his father becomes a jerk. His father's a jerk. Yeah, and, you know, Roberto is having a tough time because he was basically a soccer superstar until his powers kicked in in the middle of a soccer game, and people close to him got hurt. But he's an Avenger now. That he is. Good for him. Along with the next introduction, Cannonball, a.k.a. Samuel Zachary Guthrie. Now, he is, you know, a very down-to-earth, Midwestern conservative guy. Not ultra-conservative to the point of abuse like Rain's adoptive father, but, you know, just, you know, we at one point he figures his faith in God is about as strong as Rain's is, but his ability is to fly like a cannonball. He's got a tough time turning. And there is a definite sound that he has a difficult time controlling or reducing, even though he does train to it when he's flying. But when he's flying, he's almost invulnerable, or nigh invulnerable, as they frequently say. Yeah, and he can pretty much smash through anything. Yeah, so he's fast. He is like a cannonball. He can plow through it, but he does have a very difficult time with turns. Oh, and before we go for the rest of the characters, just to jump back with them, the three we said already real quick. Like when they recreated the X-Men with Giant Size X-Men number one, this is very much an international team again, because Wolfsbane is from Scotland, Sunspot's Brazilian, and Cannonball is from Kentucky. Yep. So we're not just getting people from New York. No, and that's the great thing about using mutants is because it's a natural part of evolution and a natural inborn power, there's no reason to say, and they're all in this major city where we have these labs that cause chemical accidents. It's just, they're going to crop up around the world and... For the most part, the mutant population density should be tied to nothing more than total population density. Exactly. You do get some odd things like, I mean, you find out that all three Summers brothers are mutants because Dad worked in a nuclear power plant. Yeah. And then also you find out later on that several of uh, Sam's uh, siblings, because he's a large family, are mutants as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things I like about it. Sam, one of Sam's biggest character arcs in his stories is deciding whether he belongs more with the new mutants or with his family. Because when we first meet him, he turned down going to college. He was the one at the book smarts because his dad died of lung cancer from working in the coal mines. And the only job Cannonball or Sam could get at that point coming right out of high school with just the diploma to support his family is the job that literally killed his father. So that's the kind of man Sam is. He puts himself in harm's way knowing he could die too, but his family needs him and that's what he can't, like, that's the option that's open to him. Yep. And his abilities actually save himself and some of his other miners after collapse. Yeah, on his first day, talk about bad luck. Yeah. If he didn't have the powers, I mean, God. <laughs> yeah. From there we meet Daniel Moonstar, who at this point, I believe is known as Mirage, or is it Psyche? Psyche's first. Mirage somehow shows up around issue 21. You just find out she's called Mirage. Yeah, there are, there's a number of options here. Her ability, initially, it's to make you see your greatest fear with additional training and practice she could start to make you see your you know your greatest desire and then other like pick and choose it's almost like she could pick your brain say i want to elicit this emotional response produce an image that will create that feeling as well as i want something that scares them but specifically the white queen yeah the next one is jean koi ma whose father is actually nastier than than roberto's or than sunspots no it's her uncle or her uncle is yeah a nasty piece of work I don't know. Probably not as nasty as Rain Sinclair's, but definitely not a good guy. No, but I, I actually think when you're going by backstory, I think she is a worse one than uh, Wolfsbane, than Rain. Yeah, there's 
there's a lot of tragedy. She's trying to help her, you know, her younger siblings out, but... Yeah, because, I mean, Wolfsbane was raised by this kind of abusive, physically abusive, or at least mentally abusive guy. Karma, you know, Shan, as they call her, because she had appeared previously in Marvel Team Up 100. So she was the only pre-existing character on the team. Everyone else was brand new, created for the graphic novel. Her backstory was that she was from Vietnam, because remember, this is 82, so they kind of, you know, her family escaped from Vietnam, I guess, after the war, and apparently they were pirates, attacked whatever ship they were escaping on. Her father was killed, and from things you read through the series, it's kind of heavily implied that um, her and her mother were, well, let's use the word again, raped repeatedly. In fact, it sounds like her mother killed herself because of that. Yeah, it was very unpleasant for them. I think the only reason I might argue to put Rain at the top of the list is that Shan at least had periods of happiness before all that hit. True. Wolfsbane kind of had a whole 13 years of, you know, misery before... Yeah, Rain has known nothing else. Before she shows up here, which is like the first time she gets a chance to have anything ha good happen to her. Yeah. So anyway, Jen Koima, her ability is to what they call possess people. So hers is outright mind control. Well, I suppose it's more body control than mind control. She can't affect your thoughts. It's like... Your brain gets turned off, and she controls you like a puppet. So, uh, think Star Trek, Spock's brain, but without the remote control, it only had five or six buttons anyway. <laughs> it's something along those lines. And it's not really fine control, right? So she can say, walk over there, and doesn't have to think, put your right foot forward, now put your left foot forward, now put your right foot forward. Yeah, she just makes you go, walk, pick up this gun, hit that guy, give me your wallet, whatever. So, now as Professor Xavier is recruiting these guys, interestingly enough... Cannonball ends up getting recruited by the Hellfire Club before he gets recruited by the New Mutants. But that doesn't last throughout the entire first issue. He is a part of the, the founding five members of the team. Yeah, so that's the, basically the premise of the original graphic novel is that Wolfsbane is found by Moira McTaggart, and she brings her to uh, Xavier. And at the same time, the Fantastic Four had rec uh, sent Karma over to him. And like we said earlier, he, the X-Men had, had been thought killed in space. He was upset. He didn't want to make a new team of heroes, but he basically was more convinced him, these kids need your help. You know, they need somebody to train them. Maybe not to be superheroes, but just to train them so they can live. And um, that leads him to finding out about Sunspot and uh, Mirage. Yeah. And going up against the Hellfire Club with that, because they're trying to kill, Hellfire Club's trying to kill them as well. And that brings Cannonball in. And it's basically a graphic novel. Yeah. And then as we go through the next few issues, pretty early on they recruit uh, Magma as the next member of the New Mutants. As her codename implies, she's got control over the Earth, and she could basically become lava and attack with lava. Yeah. And needs to be in contact with the Earth to get the full strength of her powers. She was actually raised in a throwback city in Central America that, at the time, she believed to have been there for almost 3,000 years as a Roman colony. In stories that happened well after this run, we learned that that wasn't the case, that I mean, she believed it, but that's not the actual history of Nova Roma. And actually, they retconned that again. I remember. I forget exactly where, but I know years later, they retconned that retcon. Okay. And I believe Nova Roma is back to being an actual missing colony of Rome in South America. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess somebody was like, that's stupid. Just make it. that was, It was fine as it was. Leave it. Yeah. As, as they said in one of the early episodes of Rachel Miles Explain the X-Men, the X-Men Corner is where the beating heart of Marvel Universe continuity goes to die. It can be a very convoluted mess at times, with retcons on top of retcons on top of retcons. Exactly. But we have that. We've got Magma. The next to join the team was Magic. And there is so much of Magic's story that takes place in other books. She was... Actually, she was a pre-existing character, come to think of it. Yeah. Yeah, so of the five 
that are introduced in this graphic novel we were just specifically referring to. Yeah, Rain, or not Rain, but Karma was the only one who, who previously existed. But Magic had already existed as of Giant Size X-Men number one. She's the younger sister of Colossus. And, from the X-Men. Yeah. And to understand how she got from her first appearance in New Mutants to her second appearance in New Mutants, you need to read about five issues of Uncanny X-Men and her four-issue Magic Limited series. Because that's it's all happening in there. Wait, from where to where? In her first issue of, of this, or the first time she shows up in New Mutants, she doesn't even know she's a mutant yet. No, I, well, no. Well, no, I, the Magic series took place, though, before she was uh, New Mutants 1. Because in the Magic is where she grows up from 6 to 16. New Mutants 1, she's already 14 years old. Okay. Yeah, so she had grown up. I missed that. I thought she was younger in this one. I think it might have been... I think I checked it by publication dates, and it's one of those things where the Magic series was ongoing. The Magic series took place... Yeah, the Magic series started after New Mutants 1 came out. But it took place... Because it basically takes place between the panels of X-Men one, uh, 160. Yeah, and then 163 was here. So that's when I, I saw Magic there and just checked to see, was this before or after the Magic series and went by publication date? Yeah, well, if you go by that, then yeah. Because I was looking at that stuff earlier today, too, and it shows the Magic, you know, shows uh, the Magic series takes place in between. But Yeah, so okay, so the Magic series had already happened but hadn't been published yet. Exactly. So this would have been confusing reading everything in the line the day it came out. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, her story is that she was Colossus' younger sister and she's kidnapped by Arcade. In around issue 145 of X-Men as a pawn, basically, as a hostage. Yeah. And they rescue her, but she stays with them. She's, she doesn't get sent back to Russia yet. So that's how she gets from Russia to America. And at the time, she's, what, seven, eight years old? Yeah, she was seven at that point. And then she's back and she's basically hiding in the, living in the mansion with them. You just don't always see. And in issue 160, she gets kidnapped by the demon lord Belisco and taken to his realm of limbo. Yeah, and it's while she's... In that Forestry Magic miniseries. That's when it takes place, yeah. Yeah, he is basically raising her to be his protege, and she's seeing glimpses of the future where she's going to be a major part, and in some case, the direct cause of the deaths of several X-Men. Yeah, because in fact, the way time works from Limbo, because they actually show you the X-Men rescuing her from Limbo, and they lose grasp of her for about 30 seconds, and that's the time, and for them, it's 30 seconds on Earth, for, the, for her, it's seven, eight years. Yeah, so it's... In Limbo. And time works weird there, so because there actually was a group of X-Men who somehow got stuck in Limbo with her, like you said, and got a little old state and got... Some died, and some just got older. Yeah, so she, she's she been pretty messed up for a long time. Because not only was she being trained to be this evil sorceress, but she killed her closest friends, and then when they bring her back, you know, when you think they might be able to bond with her and try and reintegrate her and help her through this seven or eight years of hell during which she discovered she's a mutant with a mutant power to create these stepping disks that she uses to chant, go enter and exit Limbo. Yeah, that's her actual power. To the fact that she's a demon sorceress is just, you know... Training. Icing. Just icing on the cake. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, uh, say, if Nightcrawler trained and became the Sorcerer Supreme, as Stephen Strange did. There's some teleportation abilities except, well, uh, magic we knew from the start. Her abilities meant creating these stepping disks that she, the character named after Larry Niven's work, to go in and out of limbo, and it wasn't until much later that Nightcrawler's teleportation was explained as going through a parallel dimension as well. Yeah, that's right. He just goes through so much quicker that you don't barely see anything. Yeah, so when these guys should be right there, and it's, you know, the prime time to help her reintegrate and readjust after someone was spent the better part of a decade trying to turn her evil, and which she escaped by essentially beating him at his own game and using these dark magics, which are eating away at her soul to beat him down and taking over limbo herself. Well, they pull her and go, whoa, how'd you get so old? And try as they might, they are treating her differently. 
everyone is virtually except Shadowcat or Kitty Pride, which is why they're roommates. And that's why Kitty Pride is probably the X-Men character who, aside from Professor X himself, crops up the most in this series. Yeah. That and the fact that, that she is the closest in age to them as well. Yeah. Yeah, which is something that in the Uncanny X-Men book, there's people going, well, maybe we should dump Kitty off this team and put her on that team because that's like her peer group, which was suggested as a demotion and it was very good stories that weren't part of this run. Yeah, but look at, yeah, because they do a lot with that. Her first appearance in this book is issue 13 for Kitty Pride, the first time you see her in New Mutants. And they imply a rivalry between, as she calls them, the ec- her and as she calls it, the New Mutants, the X-Babies. Yeah. That we really didn't see in the New Mutants at all. No. No, it's not there. And it's the first hint of X-Babies is when a member of the New Mutants says, no wonder they call us X-Babies. And if you're reading it, it's like, what, they do? Really? I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, where'd that happen? Yeah. And most of the time, if if, if you're reading this and go, where did that happen? And there's not a, an editor's note telling you where it happened. It was in Uncanny X-Men. Yeah. In fact, chances are, look in the checklist that usually appeared in those issues, if you're reading the original issue, and whatever issue of Uncanny X-Men, probably there. Probably the same month. Yeah. So um, so that's it. There were two other members of the team by the time it's all said and done. The first was Cypher, who we've mentioned before, who just appeared initially to be a student at the school with a knack for languages and eventually gets roped in because they need his computer language skills to save one of their members. Yeah, he starts out as just a friend of Kitty Pride. In fact, it is his first appearance. It's uh, issue 14 is his fir- the first time that uh, he shows up, I think. Or no, sorry, 13 is his first appearance. And he's just a friend of Kitty's who just happens to be good with computers because she's a hacker. Yeah, and that's how they meet. And it's you find out in the, you know, slightly later in an issue of Uncanny that he's a mutant. Doug doesn't find out himself until, well, months and months later. Issue 21, yeah, which is when Warlock shows up. Yeah, Warlock shows up and Cannonball basically says, hi, um, you know, because Cannonball and Moonstar being the oldest are co-leaders of the team. Cannonball essentially wakes him up going, yeah, by the way, we're mutants. So are you. We need your help. You're getting drafted. Let's go. Exactly. Which is the, I love, that's one part I love about that issue. It's, it's not just they tell him this or they need him right away. It's, yeah, wake up, buddy, because it's the middle of the night. Hi, it's me, Sam. I can fly. I'm a mutant. So is everyone else, like you said. <laughs> so are you. We need you to help talk to this alien robot thingy. Yeah. We need to find out if it's friendly or not. So come on. All right. Let's go. And it's great. He doesn't jump to it. They're like, come on, man, move. He's like, you know, give me a minute here. I've got a lot to process in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Give me five seconds to process things. Okay. Yeah. And, but yeah, we had him and Warlock. They both join in issue 21 and Warlock is a alien mutant. Yeah. So not to be confused with the other Warlock that Al is so well known for, who's also got a thing with a, a villain named Magus. That's true. Yeah. He, no, not Adam Warlock. This is just Warlock, like Cher. Yeah, so if anyone else uses the uh, Collectors with a Z uh, comic book database software, stop putting Adam Warlock and New Mutants and Warlock Technarchy in the the cosmic stories. They are two different characters. Constantly cleaning that up in my own issues. <laughs> but yeah, Warlock is, uh, yeah, like you said, he's a, uh, I'm trying to figure out how best to describe him. His race is the, which I never know how to pronounce it, Technarchy? Yeah, I think it's Technarchy. I think the most succinct description I could come up with for Warlock, given that he appeared in about 1984, Think Transformers on steroids. Yeah. Or actually, if you read later X-Men stuff, think the Phalanx, because that's basically his race. Yeah, it is. They're using the same techno-organic virus. So Warlock is, he's basically a, a sentient life form that's robotic in nature, and he can change shape at will. Yeah, he's very male- malleable. He can just change his form to almost anything he wants. Yeah, so this is well beyond, you know, the Transformers where Optimus Prime is either a robot or a semi. 
No, this is like, you know, Plastic Man levels of malleability. Even further, because he can change from his basic sort of humanoid robotic form to a car, to a hot air balloon, to a robotic looking dog, to a person. And not just a robotic looking person, but a actual person with hair and skin. Yeah, to, well, in annual number three, That's, Warlock yeah, exactly. and the Impossible Man go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and one of the things that they do is compete in a beauty contest. And, you know, for, for males, like a bodybuilding contest, which they refer to as a beauty contest, but yeah. Yeah, in fact, that's how Warlock eventually wins the shape-shifting contest with the Impossible Man. He can change color. Yeah. He's interesting. He's got a very distinct speech pattern. It's not like your standard, hmm, this guy's robotic. We need something to set him apart. He does not understand fractions or contractions. There we go. This is way beyond contractions. This is, he doesn't refer to himself in the third person. He refers to himself as self. So he'd say, you know, self needs sustenance or something along those lines. And he refers to everyone as their titles. So Cypher, who's his best friend, is his, his self, sole best friend, Cypher Doug. Yeah. Instead of just Doug. Or it's Chief Danny Mirage, because she's the boss. They Everyone calls her Chief. So therefore, he, she's Chief Danny Mirage. Yeah. And, you know, he's got those distinct... Uh, lettering on his word balloons too with the borders to give you the sense that he's got you know a distinctly inhuman voice he can be a lot of fun he can be used carefully for comic relief i actually enjoyed him going up against the impossible man sometimes i find the impossible man is a little too cheesy yeah but here warlock had been handled so well and was so easy to accept that warlock and going head to head with the impossible man actually to me increased the impossible man's credibility a little bit even though it was a very fun and goofy issue oh yeah well, it also depends on who the artist is. I mean, he was created when Bill Sienkiewicz was drawing the book. So that was perfect for Warlock. Yeah, and if, we're, if we want to touch on the impact that this story had on the industry up to this point, Bill Sienkiewicz was a working and respected artist prior to this. He had already done, you know, his run on the Moon Knight, which really defined that character. But if you go back to the stuff he did before his New Mutants work, I would look at that, and if you strip the credits off and show me the pages, I would look at it and say... This is an artist who influenced Bill Sienkiewicz. It's not until the Demon Bear saga, I would say, in this series, that Bill Sienkiewicz really kicks in a drive and his style is refined as the Bill Sienkiewicz that we know today. This series didn't just create the New Mutants, which was the first major X-Men spinoff in the franchise. Yep. This really created Bill Sienkiewicz as he's known today. This is where he had the opportunity to go to levels of abstraction in the story just because of the nature of the Demon Bear saga and could continue to run with it. And yeah, so you wouldn't have Electra Assassin, because that came out after this. In fact, I think that's what he left the book to do, when he leaves in like issue 30 or 31. Uh, yeah, the timing's about right, so. I think that's why I remember reading the letter columns when I was reading it. But yeah, just to, since we did the characters, just to make things succinct for everybody who hasn't read the whole thing, since this isn't like a regular story where it, there's a beginning, middle, end. You know, even Clone Saga has that, for the most part. You know, beginning, clone comes back, middle, lots of clones, end, you're not a clone anymore. You know, at least there's that. This one is just kind of life for them. Most of the stories on this list are stories. Like you're saying, this is not a story. It's not yeah. beginning, middle, and end. This is, you know, a lot of times they refer to comics as the perpetual second act, where you want things to be changing, but not really culminating and not really wrapping up. This is Chris Claremont starting a book that he plans to write indefinitely. So we've got a first act, and then a very long second act that doesn't finish before the book gets passed off to the next creator. Yeah. In fact, you could say, you know, unless you stop reading with issue 37, in which case you had a last act, which is when they die. But yeah, so in fact, when I remember seeing this on the list, I mean, I love, this is one of my favorite series ever. So yes, I wanted to do this episode, but I really don't think this should have been on the list because this is not a story. 
There's a lot of great New Mutant stories that I would have picked to go on here on the list, but not the entire, this is a run. Like, why is this on here and not Fantastic Four 1 to 102? You know, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby on the Fantastic Four. How come that's not on there? Or all of Frank Miller on Daredevil. Yeah, as opposed to Daredevil 181 getting singled out. Exactly. Like, There's some inconsistency in the voting for this series, I think. I think they really were not clear on for people on criteria of what to vote for. If they, I don't think they were really clear of, this is the criteria we're looking for. Great stories, not runs. You know, like say, don't put all of Stan and Jack on Fantastic Four. Pick which story of theirs you like best. Was it Inhumans? Was it Galactus? The first Doom? You know, pick something. Actually, the uh, the press release for it, I, I get Marvel's press releases because of the work I do through Bureau42.com. They explicitly said, if you want to do an entire run, that's fine. There's no size limit. Oh, well then. Which is, it's odd. Because there's sometimes I could say an entire run. Like, if you told me Abnett and Lanning's entire cosmic run. So, you know, not just the Annihilation that kicked it off, but Annihilation right through Thanos' imperative. That I would say, yes, that's a run. That has a beginning, middle, and end. This doesn't fit that. There's storylines I could pull out of here. I could say, yeah, you could pull the Demon Bear saga alone out and make a case for it. You could pull out, you know, a lot of the individual issues later on. For example, there's an issue with a mutant at another school who ends up committing suicide. Uh, 45. That's on my list. I actually made a little list of the ones I would pick as, instead of the entire run, what I would consider voting for. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say that issue belongs on the list of the 75 greatest marvels. For me, I put that one, I had a 21, which is the, the Slumber Party issue and also the first Warlock Cypher. Yep. Uh, I had 15 to 17, which is when you first meet the Hellions. Okay. Yeah, that sets up a big part of the, the tone of this book is the rival school. Yeah. The Asgardian War story, which could go for this or X-Men. Yeah, which I didn't read because it wasn't explicitly listed on the top 75, but... If you've never read it, worth reading. Just worth reading that Asgardian War story, those four issues. Yeah, I, I read it my first time through reading these trades because that was my... First exposure, I read those two issues of New Mutants way back when, and then I was grabbing the classics volumes, because at one point I decided I was going to read all of Marvel continuity, ever. <laughs> That'd take a while. But yeah, I'd also throw in there Annual 2, which is the Alan Davis issue. Yeah. Uh, was it, what you said, 45, uh, 46 to 50. Yeah, when they're running from the Magus through time. Exactly. Magus being and Warlock's father, and in that species, you earn the right to live by killing your father. Oh, that's right. Yes, we kind of tracked off Warlock. Yes, that's the whole point. Warlock is escaping because he's hiding from his father because he doesn't want to kill him. And in fact, that's what makes we... I don't know if they actually... I forget they stated in the in this book. I think it is like issue 50 that that's what makes Warlock actually a mutant is unlike the others of his race, he is not as violent. He actually will... He actually has a friendly emotions. Yeah. That's what makes him a mutant. The fact that he's not just a violent monster. Yeah, he is Rusty the Friendly Dalek. His mutation exactly. is to be what the rest of his species considers broken. Exactly. But yeah, that story I put on there. And finally, 53 and 54, the last two issues of Claremont's run, which again are against the Hellions. Yeah. Any of those I would say should be on the, could be on this run. I just find it weird the entire, I mean, entire run. That's just like, what? How does that make it on the list? That's just Yeah, I don't understand why, why this run is on the list. And then, as you said, the Frank Miller Daredevil, or as we've discussed previously, the John Byrne Fantastic Four why some of these other major runs are chopped up into individual stories. Yeah, like how can you not say Stanley and Jack Kirby on the FF isn't one of the greatest Marvel things ever? Really? Yeah, instead we just pulled select issues from their work. Or either Stan and Steve, Stan and Steve Ditko, or Stan and John Romita on Spider-Man. Yep. You know, that's why it boggles me. As much as I love this, it's like, wait, the book, you know, FF, the book that gives us the Fantastic Four, the Black Panther, 
Doctor Doom, Galactus and the Silver Surfer, the Inhumans, and all that, and that's not the greatest? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the impact that this had on the industry, it did give us a book with a unique identity that stayed unique until after Louise Simonson Jones left, and at which point it just became Rob Liefeld X-Men or Jim Lee X-Men, like the rest of Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee, to the point where it was no longer the name Mutant, so they rebranded it X-Force. Yes. It did that, and it introduced some characters, but looking at the cast of characters that we have here, aside from Cannonball and Sunspot, I can't think of anyone who's forming you know, a major player, whereas Cannonball and Sunspot, they're two of Hickman's Avengers. Yeah, well, in fact, I'd say Cannonball had the most as amount as a major player. He was almost constantly used somewhere majorly. After this, he was in um, X-Force, and then after that, he was in the X-Men for a while, mm-hmm. and then they... um. When they rebought the New Mutants team, you know, title back, he was in that, and now, like you said, he's an Avenger. Sunspot, I say secondary because he's in the uh, Avengers, but he wasn't used as much as Cannibal over the years. I actually would say the second one would be Wolfsbane, because she, for the most part, had a big part in Peter David's X Factor series over the years. Yeah, it's a, yeah, Cannonball is probably number one for the amount of usage, with Wolfsbane second. And I would put Sunspot and Mirage thir- uh, as a tie, because while she's not used as much now, she was used bit more in the team than Sunspot was like in the intervening years. Yeah. Back and forth. True. And for a lot of the rest, I honestly couldn't tell you which of the other members are even alive. Oh, sorry. I made a mistake. Magic? Because she is actually yeah. on the X-Men right now. I mean, she was dead for the longest time. Yeah. And then we had a- AVX, which was, she was a bit of a major player in that. Yeah. So she was, yeah, she was dead from like uh, 91, 92, whenever, whatever year was Inferno. Because she dies. She is gone. In issue 75 of this book, after Claremont leaves, she is uh, changed back to the seven-year-old she was. And then she gets sent home to Russia for about two or three years, and then she pops back up in X-Men, and in X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 303, she dies from the legacy virus. Yeah. So that's like 95, 96, I think. And then 10 years later or so, she's brought back. Okay. Yeah, my X-Men read-through got up to about Inferno, and then kind of stalled out a bit. So. Yeah, I was reading X-Men straight through from... Like I said, I started with X-Men and New Mutants at 61 and 227, so the last issues of Fall of the Mutants. And for X-Men, I went pretty much to like 298, 300. And then that's when I kind of, after that, with the X titles, I kind of dropped out. And then every once in a while, I would pop in for either an issue or maybe even a year or two, and then drop out again, and then pop back in for a few and go, okay, and then they lose me at some point. (laughs) Yeah, see, I didn't know Magic died, because by the time I was reading it again, she was better. Yeah, she died in between. Yeah, I picked up one day and I'm like, what? Because she is one of my favorites out of this book. Yeah, and that's one of the things that this does leave a legacy. Even if the other people weren't using the characters very much, they are all very rich and fully developed characters. Yeah. Every one of these guys, any other writer could, you know, pick up that graphic novel and then tell more stories with any of the five, pulling on their existing backstories. There's also a lot of stuff in this book that actually gets brought into, like, becomes major X stuff later that I didn't realize started here. Fictional Island Nation of Madripoor, which is used a lot in Wolverine's solo books, first appears in New Mutants. Yep. The character of the Shadow King, uh, Amal Farouk, who is a telepath, he first appeared in Uncanny X-Men 117, and he's in a flashback, and you see Professor Xavier has a psychic duel with him and kills him mm-hmm. when he was a lot younger. This is where he first shows back up and actually does something in modern times. So before he was like the big evil Shadow King used in the uh, X-Men titles all you know back and forth, he first faced the New Mutants. Yeah, we've got that. We've got, if not the first appearance, a lot of major development for Magneto as the hero instead of the villain, which 
from what I hear, was used best in Acts of Vengeance. I've got to get around to reading those Captain America Acts of Vengeance issues. I was thinking the same thing actually earlier. I was looking through stuff in the. Uh, I read a lot of my books in the Marvel Digital Unlimited. Yeah, because they have I. a lot of stuff in there. And they had. I was skimming through those actually. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot Cap- Magneto's in there. I really want to read those. This is about the time that the X, the uh, New Mutants were missing again because they go missing a lot. And they, they. This is when they did a really long story where they were in Asgard. And at this time, Magneto was kind of. Um, he had joined the Hellfire Club with Storm to kind of as a. Because they, this is a time in the Marvel Universe where things were getting really, really dark for the mutant characters. Yeah. You know, I mean, almost everyone hated them, wanted them dead. And so they had to make allies of wherever they could. And in fact, I think at some points Magneto says he's basically trying to attract noise because things are so bad that forget about trying to fight for peace. I'm just going to make noise and have people looking at me going, oh, there's the evil guy. So you guys can run away because every light's going to be focused on Magneto. Yeah, it's Jim Shooter seemed to think that the X-Men worked best when they were separated from the rest of society and went to great lengths to keep them that way. This was the era where we had X-Men versus Avengers and X-Men versus Fantastic Four. Yeah, I will say this, though. Now, like, uh, since I, I wasn't reading, New, I started New Mutants and X-Men at the same time. So that period of X-Men I wasn't reading because I think Jim Shooter was out by the time I started reading it, or if not out, on his way out. But I know, like, I was reading X-Men starting with 227 on. I would pick up back issues. Like, I remember 205 and 210, reading the back issues of them, and actually feeling like, are they going to survive this? Now, I knew they sur- who's- I knew they would survive. I read later. I was reading three years later. And I still got this feeling from those issues of, this is bad, and I don't know how they're going to live. Mm-hmm. So, right or wrong, it was effect. I think it was effective, at least. It was. And it's, I mean, every character needs to be put through the ringer. It's like Jim Shooter said, and they will have no friends. That's the thing that's it. If they're not a mutant, they have they will have no friends to the point that apparently he even pushed to get Carol Danvers out of the mansion when she was there as binary, which Chris Claremont kind of did by putting her on the Star Jammer, so she'd still be involved with the group that could be their friends because they're being led by Cyclops and Havoc's father. And Professor X ended up joining them for a while. Yeah, as we see in here, Xavier and Lalandra are on the Star Jammers, but they're off the page for so many issues at a time that the X-Men can still feel isolated. Exactly. And, but also... Like you said, Claremont said, fine, I'll get rid of her. But like you said, he put her on the Star Jammers. Not only was it sort of friends of theirs, they really were only used in the X-Men for the most part. Like 99% of their appearances are in X-Men or New Mutants at this time. Yeah, aside from, I think, peak late 90s, early 2000s bloat when they were just trying everything and publishing anything in the world, they got, was it a 12-issue series of their own? I know about that. I know Warren Ellis did write a four-issue miniseries of theirs when he was doing Excalibur. Okay. Yeah, they had a miniseries and they had an attempt at an ongoing before things crashed. For the most part, the Star Jammers exist as guest stars in X-Men, or now in the Cyclops ongoing. Yeah. So it still was, so Claremont was a smart move. He's like, fine, I'll get rid of her, but she's still basically one of my supporting characters. Yeah. It's not as easy to use her, but I still can. Ha Yeah, he can. And that's a lot of what this introduced. Like we said, there's a lot of characters. Some of the, the backstory and introductions to the, the Marvel Universe, it's got the Nova Roma. It's got Magma. It does more development of the Hellfire Club. But for the most part, Chris, Clare- Chris Claremont wanted to do his own thing. Yeah. So what they introduced had a huge impact on the X-Books. But outside those X-Books, I think Jonathan Hickman's Avengers are really the only place I've seen where they had a major impact. Well, yeah, I mean, outside of the X-Books. But for the most part, most of the X-Characters, with the exception of Wolverine, always, never really did much outside of their own of the X-Books anyway. Yeah. And a lot of that, apparently there are some very respected and very well-known writers who were offered the job on X-Men when Chris Claremont originally left. And one of the reasons they had a bunch of new rookies in there is because all of these 
very well respected and very well known writers that they were offering the jobs to looked at it and said, I am not dealing with a cast of 250 characters, find someone else. So nobody else wanted to touch what Claremont was doing because he had a lot of long game plans for it that they didn't want to mess up. And it was just, okay, you do your own thing. I'll be happy to just keep reading it, but I'm not going to write it. Yeah. Real quick, I think just to be fair to people who haven't read everything, I just think we should do a quick overview of some things in the series, if you don't mind. Oh, no, not at all. Just like year by year, like issue one through 12 is the, or, you know, the team gets together. Karma, they think dies. So by issue five, so right away we lose a member of the team. And then we get the story in Nova Roma where we find this ancient city that's settled by Rome in uh, the Amazon rainforest. And that's where we get magma joining. So the second year is what, 13 to 24. They get back to New York. Secret Wars happens. So this is the first time because one period, one thing I noticed in this book is a lot of times these kids are on their own. I mean, they're training, Mm -hmm. they're just training team. But a lot of time, either they've run away or no one's home besides them. You know, they're kind of like existing on their own a lot. And that's, you know, Secret Wars happens. The X-Men and Professor X get kidnapped, and the uh, except for Kitty Pride, And they have to go rescue her from the White Queen. And that's where you first meet the Hellions, which is their opposite number, basically. Yeah. And from there, it leads almost directly into that Demon Bear saga we've mentioned, where... Yes. And that's where Sienkiewicz takes over. Yeah. And that was... We, we've known from the start that Danny Moonstar's parents were killed by a bear. This is the saga where we found out they weren't killed by a bear. They were mutated and turned into the bear. It's an evil spirit, and in fact, looking up some stuff later, looking up some stuff out of the series, because I was trying to figure out if they ever explain what the demon bear is, I think the demon bear is supposed to be the adversary, which is the demonic entity that quote-unquote kills the X-Men during the fall of the mutant story. Okay, that is quite possible. Yeah, and year three. Introduction of Legion, because it's like issue 25 to what, uh, 36 then. Yeah, and that's, introduction of Legion is by far the biggest. Then we have our Secret Wars 2 crossovers. Yeah, and as much as Secret Wars 2 wasn't great, I like a lot a lot of the crossover issues I've read of that, I've enjoyed. I mean, yeah. these, like I said, that's why I would include, um, I had that on there, 36 to 40, actually, are issues I would include on this greatest list, which is the Beyonder basically comes to the New Mutants with, I give you peace and love, but you better take it, because if not, I'm going to be, I'm going to kill you all. And he does, and then brings them back, and it involves, it's actually an early image of the White Queen, Emma Frost, being used as not just a villain. She helps save their souls yeah yeah it's a big part of it because it's they're back from the dead and they remember being dead so that kind of messed them up royally yeah and they end up joining the hellfire they end up joining her uh, massachusetts academy for a while yeah which comes out a lot through issue 39 that's where that wraps up yeah and 40 actually then because magneto goes to get them back and uh, the white queen makes the genius move instead of fighting him or sending them to fight him calls the avengers and says help supervillain yeah, she says, Magneto's coming to kidnap some of my students, and this sets up a lot of what comes out in that Avengers, or X-Men vs. Avengers 4-issue miniseries that follows. Yeah, and in fact, this is also where when we were early on in this episode, we were talking about Empath, this is where that a lot of that Empath stuff comes from. Uh, Magneto wasn't sure how to help the mutants with their emotional trauma, and Empath was be- had been sent there by the White Queen to kind of heighten his uh, confusion and unease so that he wouldn't know what to do, so then when she came in saying, I'll help them, I'm a telepath. I can save them. He would agree. Yep. And at that time, was it Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, who were humans who worked for the school, found him, and that's when he did the whole emotional rape thing to them. Yep. And that's that's what leads into that issue 43, Getting Even. Yeah. Which is, yeah, so reading it at home, this is a run worth reading, but don't jump from issue 37 to 43. No. No, not like I did. Not a good plan. Yeah. And don't do it like I did and jump from actually Secret Wars 2 number 1 
actually, I think it was the first time I read anything with them, to New Mutants 21 to 61. Yeah. Very confusing. <laughs> I mean, so year four ends with, you know, well, it's got the Mutant Massacre Part 5, which, as crossovers go, getting just Part 5 of that kind of holds up. Yeah, it's not a bad one part of it. You get an idea of what happened, but since they're not really involved in it, you only get their little bit. Yeah. The, the next issue is that 47 to 50 are where Warlock's Father the Magus shows up, and he's trying to to go after them, and they end up split through time and in different possible futures. Yeah, they, and, they, and also, in, yeah, one issue in the past and two in the future, which is pretty cool, actually. I like that, the way they did that. They use the different, they use the good mutant future and the bad mutant future, but to extremes. It is, and it, it's weird, though, because it, even though they're entertaining stories, looking back at the structure, it almost felt like they didn't have consequences, because Chris Claremont didn't have enough time left on the title to pick up on them. So when you read just the Claremont run, it feels almost like empty threads, and it's it felt almost like issues 47, 48, and 49 were almost fillers that were wrapped up in the first few pages of issue 50 to have that that big issue 50 double size on issue number 50 instead of issue number 47. True. It felt a little bit like they were buying time. But they were enjoyable. I liked them a lot. Yeah, they, they're fun issues, but you could, I think, potentially skip from, 40, from 46 to 50 and pick up what you need to know to continue from there. Oh, yeah, but... I still like them, although I still don't understand in 49 how Katie Power from Power Pack gets to be older than Sunspot. But that's my oh, that's always my minor nitpick that always bothers me with that issue. Yeah. Well, she's led a hard life. Harder it's than like, he has anyway. Wait, when they're kid, like, wait, in present day, she's five and he's 13. How come in the future she's like 70 and he's 50? Yeah, well, <laughs> in, in, the, in the future, he's rich enough to afford plastic surgery. You got a point there. All right, I'll go with that. But yeah, so they and they actually get reunited Professor X in issue 50 because around issue... 34 yeah between 30 issue between issue 34 and 35 professor x leaves and magneto becomes head of the school yeah and he's there for over but well about a year and a half so that was part of my confusion because that jumping from issues 37 to 43 issue 37 he refers he's referred to under his secret identity of michael xavier i missed the fact that he was magneto until i read the next issue so yeah you didn't realize at the time yeah and then it ends with as you said those last two issues when they're that uh Seduced and abandoned and rat race in 53 and 54 with Karma leaving the team and uh, sort of wrapping up what Chris Claremont had planned between this team and the Hellions. Yeah, their last little competition with each other, which in fact ends with the Nubians losing it. Yeah. They don't win. They don't, which is actually, it's a refreshing touch. Yeah, well, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of great things about the book when you read the whole thing, like using the Hellions, for example, except for Empath, for the most part, they're not evil. You know, they, they might be White Queen's training team, but again, they're only used as like a training team like the New Mutants. You never see the Hellions really being used to commit crimes in any other book or do anything evil. Yeah, you, you get the feeling that the White Queen is grooming them. And she wants them to join. Yeah, yeah, but it's not like Professor X saying, stay out of the way. White Queen's like, ah, at your own risk. Yeah. But I would also say that Roulette is, oh, is the next closest as well. Yeah. And Empath is, if you didn't have Empath on the team, Roulette would be hands down the worst member. And she's not that bad, actually. No, I mean, she, there's some things that, that she does that are just nasty. But it, for what we see from her, it's something that you couldn't like her, you couldn't respect her, you wouldn't want to hang out with her. But not the kind of thing that says you belong in prison. Empath crosses that line. Oh, God, over and over. No, she actually, in fact, Roulette reminds me a lot of uh, a little more hard edge than Boom Boom when she first appeared very early on. Yeah. Like, I almost got the impression that Roulette was also a street kid who was a petty thief and, like, used to surviving on her own and living on her own like that. Yeah, where Roulette is, 
She's primarily just very, very selfish and self-centered. And when she crosses the line into evil, it's because it's convenient and not because she was aiming for it. So, yeah. you know, she'll often have one foot over the line, but not both. Whereas Empath is just, where's the line? Okay, I'm going to cross it in a supersonic jet. Yeah, but the others, in fact, are pretty much pretty decent. I mean, Thunderbird, who is the younger brother of the Thunderbird from the X-Men, in fact, is now a mainstay of the X-Books for the most part. He was the one who joins, uh, he joins uh, X-Force, and he's been an X-Man as well. And uh, in fact, a lot of times when you see these issues with the, the Hellions, Claremont even writes several issues, like he's, uh, several pages, like he's writing a Hellions book. Mm-hmm. Like you get to see their inside of just them together with the White Queen. And it has nothing to do with the New Mutants, just kind of showing that they're just students too, for the most part. Yeah, and it's that, I mean, Proud Star here, I mean, he's got no questions about what Empath is. When the New Mutants screw with Empath, he's like, you know what? We take care of our own, but you're absolutely right. He deserved every single thing you gave him. We're just going to like take him home and keep him on a leash. We're not going to retaliate against you for what yeah. you just did to Empath because he deserved all of that and more. Yeah, and the moment the Newmans leave and Empath starts planning his revenge, he just punches them out. He's like, don't you learn, you moron. Yeah, I did. I did like it. It's, this is a very enjoyable run, but if you're looking for just beginning, middle, and end, you're going to find that either not at all or several times. Because yeah. there are story arcs in here that close off nicely, but this is Claremont but writing as Claremont does, where it's, you know, he writes by throwing 15 balls in the air, and when he had writer's block and went to his editor saying, I'm dry, I'm going to quit, she just said, oh, by the way, this ball is still floating, you want to do something with that? And he'd go away for a year and come back and say, I'm dry, I'm going to quit. And she goes, oh, yeah, this ball. Yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, shiny. I like that one. But yeah, no, there's a lot of stuff to like in it. In fact, while I did say complain before a bit that there's, like, because of the tie-ins with X-Men, there's times where things don't get resolved here, they get resolved in the other book, and they don't really explain it. The switch from Professor X to Magneto, I like how they do here. They yeah. just do it. Because when you, if you're reading the X-Men as well, and X, that happens in X-Men 200, Xavier's injured, and he's taken away by the Star Jammers to heal, but because of space craziness, he can't get back. And he leaves Magneto in charge. The only one who knows that is Mag- sees that is Magneto. Everyone else has to take his word or try and believe him. And if you're reading X-Men, you can understand why the X-Men... Could have some trouble believing him, but you know the truth because you saw that. Mm-hmm. If you're only reading New Mutants, you only have his word. You don't see what actually happened. You're just like, what? And you're right there with them. Yeah, the New Mutants are in a state of shock. And as you said, if this is all you're reading, you only experience what they do. And you're just as blindsided as they are, which it is great. Yeah. So anyway, uh, wrapping up a little bit here. Yes. Do you? One of the things we like to look at is whether or not there's any deeper meanings, you know, as they do on the mission log podcast a star trek roddenberry podcast which everyone should be listening to anyway uh there's a lot of deeper meanings because like we said it's not a story so there's not a deeper meaning this is basically a deeper meaning this is growing up Mm -hmm. and learning how to be an adult because that's basically what it's all that's basically i guess the deeper meaning i got from this is that the whole thing is them learning how to grow up and how to not just you know put themselves first not how to be selfish children yeah and a lot of that comes through there's character arcs that take it beyond that. Like, again, Sunspot is a lot of don't be a selfish, sense-centered child. Rain Sinclair is accept yourself for who you are, right? And rejecting that abusive relationship that she grew up with. I can imagine a lot of abused children seeing some of their experiences in Rain Sinclair. There's issues with insecurity that harken back to, you know, the way Scott Summers was in the 60s when he was first given command of the team. And he's yeah. going, whoa, 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 why me? We're getting a lot of that from... More so from Cannonball than Moonstar, but they both have, whoa, why am I in charge moments? Exactly, yeah. And in fact, that's the way they kind of presented it in the book, was they're both co-leaders, but 
Moonstar is more the war chief. She's the tactician. They even even um they have Professor X say because they do a little what's it called it. And some of the issues they show his notes on the on the students, and she says she's on par with Cyclops at that age as uh, doing tactics. Cannonball is kind of the emotional dad leader, you know. But if it's not fighting, they go to him. If it's for fighting, it's Mirage in charge. Yeah. So again, if anyone else grew up reading comics starting with the uh, the Marvel GI Joe run, it's like Cannonball is Hawk, Moonstar is Duke. Right. There you go. Where you've got the the general and the field commander. And also going with uh, a lot of things that Claremont always did early on. I mean, first. Claremont has his faults for writing, like you said, but he also has a lot of strength, a lot of great things about him. And this is one of them. Who's in charge? It's, you know, it's 1982, 83. And who's he put in charge? The girl. Yeah. You know, and he makes the guy, the emotional, you know, the oldest guy, the emotional center, basically, the emotional one they go to, to take care, you know, make them, help them grow up. The girl is the one who leads them in battle. Yeah. And it's, as with the X-Men team, the, the females outnumber the males on the team. Yeah. Right. You have Wolfsbane, Mirage, or Psyche. You've got Magic. You've got Karma, and you've got Magma, a female out of the... Right. Eventually, yeah. your early on. Starts with three of those. Eventually, we get up to five. Starts with two guys in Sunspot and Cannonball. We add Cypher. And you can kind of count Warlock. Yeah, if you're going to assign a gender to Warlock at all, it would be male. But you can argue that he's neutral. Yeah, because he's not human and not even... Yeah, his species doesn't procreate that way. Yeah, he's not even he's not even alien in the way that you consider, like, Spock. Like, go to Star Trek again. Or, you know, any Klingons or... Going with Marvel Universe, you know, the Shi'ar. You know, they have genders. They have male-female genders. His race is just that race. Yeah, if you look they at one. Kalark the Gladiator or Superman or most of your your aliens, you can say, oh yeah, that's male. Or, oh yeah, that's female. But Warlock, I mean, I think the only reason I think of Warlock as male, partly because of the way he, he fuses with Doug, it just, I don't know why. That strikes me as they should be like two of a kind. But I, I think it's... I'd have to check, but I think he's referred to by male pronouns by the teammates. I think so. I wonder if that also has to do with maybe the initial bonding, you know, from issue 21. Doug's the first one that actually is able to talk to him. And they've bought, you know, they show over the time that they're the bond, you know, that's his best friend. And I think he's just kind of subconsciously even mimicking Doug in the fact of being gender wise, you know, how you look and act. Yeah, I think the way it's it's being translated, Magus and Warlock refer to each other as father and son, which is why I would associate both with male, but. Yeah. Again, that could be, oh, that's just how it was translated after being filtered through Doug. Exactly. So I think that's, yeah, because I don't think they really have a gender. I think Magus just looks the way he does just because he's supposed to look big and scary. Yeah. And for, like, I wonder even if, like, if Doug Cypher was a female character, would Warlock actually have looked more female? Yeah, I don't, it, it's definitely an open question because that's where the, the connection was first made. And Warlock says, I'm trying to mimic you guys. So yeah. There's, there's no reason he wouldn't be more influenced by that, by Doug in his first contact. Anyway, I think that, that pretty much wraps it up. So it's a lot of Chris Claremont's themes where you get different themes in different stories, but the only overarching theme is really it's time to grow up. Yeah, because, I mean, they deal with a lot of stuff. Like you said, it's all those personal things. They deal with suicide, prejudice, learning that your heroes aren't uh, the perfect things they are, yep. and either dealing with that or not. I mean, because, like you said, Sunspot and his father, he learns his father is not the you know his hero he had growing up. Yeah. Forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera. It's, yeah, everything that covers growing up, basically. <laughs> yep. All right, so uh, getting on why we think we landed that this landed at this point in the tournament, I think we covered a lot of that earlier. There are stories in here that belong so many in good the ones. 60s or better in, in this top 75 Marvels, but the whole thing as a package, that's a tougher case to make. Yeah, I, I like I said, I love it. I was, I'm thrilled to, have, to be able to reread it, to have an excuse to reread it. But yeah, I don't think the entire package should have been on here. There are plenty of stories that should have. 
Yeah, I would if you're going to read this at home, which is a good idea. Oh yeah, I I recommend. Yeah, I would recommend um, if you're reading it in the New Mutants Classics trade paperbacks volumes, then read all the issues in there. Don't skip the crossover issues that I skipped just because I was adhering to strictly what's listed on the countdown. Don't do like I did. Yeah, they'll fill in more blanks than you had. Yeah, we we should mention that Scribd is a, a Netflix type bookseller where you can just read any books that the retailers have marked for free. The first three volumes of New Mutants are in there. As of this recording, they've just started adding graphic novels within the past week. Ooh. And the first three volumes are there, along with what they say that they're launching with uh, 20% of Marvel's in-print collected catalog, as well as collections for a pile of other uh, comic publishers. Very cool. Yeah, so that's nine bucks US a month for unlimited Netflix-style access to what's on there. Not bad. Yeah, and I've, I've got that app on my tablet, and I plan to start really digging through the archives when I'm done or at least far enough ahead in reading for this podcast that I have time to read other things. Yeah, I would say, you. yeah, that's a good idea. Wait till you have actually a time, but I'm going to have to check that out. But yeah, I would agree with what you said. If you're going to read this, you're reading those trades, read everything in there. If you're reading it on either Marvel Digital Limited or like you're buying the back issues or anything like that, I would really recommend reading the X-Men at the series that's time along with it. I would actually say start with X-Men 160, which comes out a few months beforehand because that gives you the basic basis with uh, Magic, Alanya, and wh where the X-Men go. And it lays enough of the brood groundwork. That you have a clue what's going on with that. And then you start with New Mutants. And you can kind of figure it out from there where to read each one. Yeah. I would recommend when you get to the Secret Wars 2 crossovers, do not read the rest of Secret Wars 2. You do get what you need from here. Nobody needs to read about Spider-Man teaching the Beyonder how to use a toilet. <laughs> that's just, yeah. that That's the most memorable part for a reason. In any event, I... Did you have any closing thoughts here, Al? Um, I miss a lot of these characters. That's what my thought is. Because we don't really see much of Magma anymore. Or Mirage, from what I can tell. Uh, yeah, a lot of them sadly dropped out. So Wolfsbane even now affects, you know, that since Peter David's last X-Factor series. It's really just Cannonball, Sunspot, and Magic. And, I mean, I like Bendis' X-Men, but he's... Uh, it seems like right now he's just using Magic as in... Because Magic was always played in there as, like, fighting her demonic nature. And the Magic in X-Men is kind of... Eh, I don't care. Yeah, I would agree with that. So so I, that's my thought is I miss a lot of these characters. All right. So uh, again, thanks for, for joining us. Looking forward to the next time that you're going to be here. Yes, which will hopefully be a little bit more uh, less disjointed because it's actually a story. Yeah, that it is. And so before we, we talk about next week's reading and, and move on, would you like to tell listeners where they can find you and your stuff? Sure. You can find me on Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. Uh, just type in, I'll just type in Adam Warlock into iTunes or go to resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. And actually, I just realized I screwed up my name of my own podcast. <laughs> it's Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. It's all about Adam Warlock and Thanos. Again, thanks for joining us. And for those of you reading along at home, next week's reading assignment is much, much smaller. It's one issue. It's a long issue, but it's one issue. It's Marvel Comics number one, the first original content published by Marvel Comics. Now, there's six stories in it because it was anthology style back in 1939 and includes the first story was reprinted in Fantasy Masterpieces number nine. Marvel Comics number one is a hardcover from 1991. Marvel Masterworks volume 36, the Golden Age Marvel Comics volume one. Marvel Comics 70th Anniversary Edition number one. Marvel Digital Unlimited and Comicsology. And if you're reading it for next week, I would recommend actually avoiding the Fantasy Masterpieces because that does not include the other five stories. Story number two is just 
the other reprints, the Marvel Comics hardcover number one, Masterworks, 70th anniversary, Marvel Digital Limited, and Comixology. Story number three was also reprinted in Invaders, Invaders number 20 in you know the Submariner volume one Masterworks, in Marvel Milestones, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, Submariner, and Hulk, and then the other places that reprint the entire issue, because that's the introduction of the Submariner. And then four, five, and six, again, are only reprinted in places that reprint the entire issue. So you can get your first appearance of the Human Torch and first appearance of Submariner in a couple of places, but if you want the complete read, stick to one of those other ones that we've mentioned, those other five. So feel free to rate the show on iTunes or on Stitcher, or check out any of Al's shows or any of your 42's other shows. Yeah. If you know someone who you think might be interested in listening and might enjoy it, please you know fire off a link to them and spread the word. And until next week, thank you for listening.